Well, that music might be a reminder for you. It is May the 4th. That means it is Star Wars Day. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but uh, not really Star Wars, more the bigger picture. What does it really take to send people to the moon and beyond? Well, my guest is Dr. Shauna Pandya, scientist astronaut candidate with the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. Dr. Shauna Pandya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. Well, before we get into to this, can you tell me exactly what is a, a scientist astronaut candidate? What do you do on, with that, under that role? Yeah, that's a great question. So that alludes to the fact that with the rise of commercial space, there are now more avenues than ever towards a path towards becoming an astronaut, uh, including through science and research through the commercial sphere. And so I've been involved with this organization for eight years now. I direct their space medicine group. And in my time, I've been lucky enough to test um, spacesuits in zero gravity, in emergency spacecraft e egress scenarios, um, and everything in between. And I also teach the space medicine class. I haven't made it to space yet, but that's not to say um, the, the sky is not the limit. Right. And, and you said hey, you haven't made it to space yet, which implies uh, that's going to happen. Yeah, I, uh, this, you know, I think this is the time to be involved in space. The, since July 2021, we have really seen this inflection point when it comes to access in space with the rise of Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and citizen astronauts. So really, the sky is no longer the limit. It's, uh, it's, it's beyond that. Wow. And, and how did you first get involved with this? You know, it, uh, it started in childhood. Like many kids, I was a kid who wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, and I never really grew out of that dream. I grew up in the 90s when Dr. Roberta Bonder, Canada's first female astronaut, flew in space. And I looked at her and I said, she's Canadian. I'm Canadian. She's female. I'm female. So really, all I need to do is be a neuroscientist, physician, and astronaut. And it's as simple as that. And that really put me on my um, path towards studying neuroscience and going to medical school. Wow, that's uh, pretty amazing. And, and I know that you're going to be speaking about this a bit later on this month and really focusing on uh, medicine and, and space medicine, medicine on the moon, medicine on Mars. Uh, can you tell us a little bit or give us a bit of a, a preview on what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, the simple takeaway, um, you know, I often get asked, like, how are these concepts even related? Space and medicine, most people don't think they go together. Um, but the simple answer is that space is trying to kill you. And so to expand upon that a little bit more, um, when we talk about the challenges of long-duration space flight, this isn't just the zero gravity that we all think about, but it's also the increased radiation environment. It's being resource limited. Um, when you're millions of miles away, um, depending on the alignment of uh, the Earth and Mars, your time Time delay for a round-trip conversation can be 6 to 46 minutes. Um, you have to be able to deal with the isolation and confinement of being away from your family and friends for long periods. In space, there's no grass, there's no oceans, there's no Starbucks. Um, and then you also have to be able to contend with these um, everything else that comes with the environment, altered day-night cycles. So um, on the International Space Station, your day-night cycle is 90 minutes. You get 16 sunrise and sunset cycles every 24 hours on the lunar equator. Uh, on the moon, that's 14 days of day, 14 days of night. And then on the moon, you get the added bonus of dealing with all the lunar dust, which really clogged up the suit um, joints for the Apollo astronauts. So for anyone who tells you that they ever tried to fake the moon landing, they put a lot of effort um, with all these thousands of pages of documentation that comes with the research and findings. 
comes from the Apollo missions. It's so interesting to hear you describe it like that, because when you say space is trying to kill us, it's it's such a, a, a bold statement, it seems. But then when you explain it like that, it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, you really need to trust the engineering of your spacecraft to protect you from the vacuum of space, from orbital debris, from temperature extremes, from radiation. You have to trust your life support systems and the engineering to keep your atmosphere within habitable um, domains uh, with respect to temperature, humidity, um, pressure, oxygen content. You have to trust the scrubbers to clean the atmosphere um, from volatile compounds that might be causing off-gassing. So there's a lot to consider. So really, um, when I say that space is trying to kill you, um, it really, you know, it takes a whole lot of effort to keep humans happy, healthy, and not just surviving, but thriving in the spaceflight environment. So do you think we're on the right track then as far as what is being studied and what's being prioritized when we are seeing so much so much attention paid and so much interest in space travel and I, I suppose really travel to Mars? Could there be human communities on Mars when we look at all these potential things for the future? Absolutely, um, because what we found out even after decades of human spaceflight is the surprises keep coming. So what we thought we knew after decades of sending humans to space via um, space shuttle, via Skylab, via the International Space Station, we're still finding out new findings like um, the the um, presence of the spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome, where that brain juice that covers our brains and our spines, it doesn't drain as well um, in space as it does on Earth, and that can cause increased pressure around the backs of our eyes, causing vision changes, which isn't so great for Mars. Um, and then the other benefit of doing all this research and all these biomedical studies in space is the benefit that comes back to Earth. So, for example, by learning about neuromuscular diseases and degeneration, because we know we lose muscle mass and bone density in the spaceflight environment, that informs our understanding of neuromuscular diseases like muscular dystrophy on Earth. Um, even the technology that we use to keep humans healthy in um, space on the space station, the atmospheric scrubbers that I was describing on life support systems a little bit earlier, they've been used in the produce transport chain to keep the atmosphere cleaner and keep produce healthier and fresher for longer. So um, when we when we talk about sending human space, there's a lot of return that comes back to us here on Earth as well. Hmm. And do you think that we can also learn, uh, when you're talking about uh, learning how to keep space from killing us when we're sending people into space and going further and further and, and on these missions, <clears throat> excuse me, are we also learning about how to take what we learn in space and, and use it towards getting healthy here on Earth? Yeah, absolutely. So some of these examples I've described, um, you know, they're just the very tip of the iceberg. In one of my day jobs, I get to work on um, virtual reality medical training modules, not just for physicians and healthcare providers on Earth, but we've also created um, virtual training, virtual reality training medical modules for astronauts on long duration missions for the Canadian Space Agency. So there really is this dual spin in, spin off benefit of informing um, how we can keep humans healthy and austere environments, whether we're talking about space, whether we're talking about rural and remote environments um, here on Earth. So there really is a mutual benefit. And so what's next for you then? I, I mentioned that this talk is coming up. What is uh, kind of your next area of, of study or what, what interests you the most about uh, learning about space right now? Oh, gosh, there's so much. So we have been lucky enough through some of our collaborators with the um, AAAS 
based medicine group, we have had several neuroscience payloads studying exactly what I described with the space flight associated neuroocular syndrome. We will be sending out payloads with SpaceX's um, Polaris Dawn All Civilian Mission, as well as the Axiom 2 mission. Um, and then I myself will be um, reprising my role as an aquanaut in the Florida Keys later this month and doing some more neuroscience related experiments underwater um, at 20 feet in an under habitat. So there's a lot happening. It's um, it's like a box of medical chocolates. Maybe it's space medical chocolates. Every day is a little bit different. You don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> All right. And uh, we, we, we are talking about this today. I mean, we could be talking about this any day, but it does happen to be Star Wars Day. Uh, have you seen Star Wars? Yeah, I, um, I was talking to my brother about this in the chat before this, um, in, in the family chat. And he was, you know, making sure that I uh, wouldn't embarrass him with um, our, what we've watched millions of times in our childhood. Um, so, yeah, definitely episodes four, five, six were a staple growing up. Return of the Jedi was a classic in our household. <laughs> and do, do you think maybe that's partially responsible for your love and curiosity of space? I think science fiction inspires a lot of in imagination and also inspires a lot of the technologies we see coming to life today. And so in Star Wars, we see these incredible technologies like synthetic skin, like Baxa tanks, where you can instantly heal. And, you know, there are forms of synthetic skin for burn patients here on Earth today, maybe not quite as advanced as we see in the Star Wars universe. But I really do believe in the power of science fiction for inspiring advances in uh, medicine and everyday science um, in our real lives. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Shauna Pandya, appreciate your time so much today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And hopefully we will talk to you again at some point. Very much looking forward to it. And for those who are in Vancouver next week, look forward to seeing them at the RASC Talk.